Hello, hello, and welcome back to A Life Extraordinary. I'm your show host, Roberto, coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And, uh, and today, I want to talk to you a little bit about the roads less traveled. Indeed, I have been fortunate enough to go explore some of the most remote, remote corners of the world, looking for the places that other people don't go to. <clears throat> and, and this has been one of my passions, indeed, to, to look for the spots that are less frequented. Because in today's day and age, so much of the world seems to have already been discovered. So much of the world has footprints wherever you go. And some of the most beautiful spots indeed tend to have a lot of people around them. You know, before the advent of social media, you would go to a place like Moline Lake in Jasper National Park, and you, you wouldn't see massive crowds lining up to get onto the little boat that takes people out on the lake. Um, before, you would go to Joffrey Lakes here in Van near Vancouver and Whistler, and you would not find all of those uh, places that, that would be so frequented, you know, emerald lakes with towering trees. And before, people didn't visit Joffrey Lakes. And yet with time and with social media, people began to go and visit and take pictures and take their selfies. And so a lot of these places that used to be less traveled are now much more frequented. And I guess I've made it my life passion to search for the places that don't have any people there. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, to tell you about the places that, while perhaps some of them are completely, per se, undiscovered, and I guess I can't say undiscovered because if I've been there, then they've been discovered, but but there's definitely a slew of places in the world which I would highly recommend that yet you will have your jaw drop to the ground when you see uh, the towering trees, the winding roads, uh, and the majestic landscapes. So I'll kick it off pretty fast today and uh, and take you on the road to Hana, which is in on the island of Maui in Hawaii. And while it is known around the world as a place and a drive to do, most people that tend to go don't tend to do it. And I don't know why, because perhaps because it's a 10-hour loop of driving. And a lot of people on vacation say to themselves, well, why would I drive a 10-hour loop somewhere when, uh, when I'm on vacation? I don't want to be driving and I'm on an island and who needs to do that? But, but the road to Hana is special, absolutely unique. It winds, it's got single lane uh, high, highway between quotation marks um, as you head off uh, from, from the small towns, and you've got towering waterfalls on your left and on your right, uh, while the road winds like only a coiled serpent could be, because it really is uh, interesting and unique that you could be looking over the window on your left, and there's a cliff down, and on the right, you've got a big waterfall crashing around you. Um, the most uh, unique part of this uh, of this road comes near the end where you can camp your park your car and camp overlooking uh, the ocean and it's and it's really one of the spots that uh, in Hawaii I highly highly recommend but let's jump over to somewhere that's a lot colder Landmannalaugard in Iceland has the Laugavegur trek which is a 50 55 kilometer trek which will make you feel like you're hiking on Mars. And I, Iceland is one of those destinations where you truly do feel on another planet simply because it's one of the youngest islands that's 
continuously still forming due to all the volcanic activity. And, uh, and to get to this trek, first you have to fly into Reykjavik. Then, uh, and mo most people don't do it, uh, and this is why it's a place less traveled, because the logistics of just getting out to start the trek require at least a day and a half. Um, so you land in Reykjavik. Then from there, uh, most of the time when you're coming from New York uh, or places as such, you'll arrive very, very early in the morning. So you check into your hotel in Reykjavik, you, you meander around the streets, you see the cathedral, that's great. The day after, you get into your vehicle and you have to drive into the, the interior of Iceland. And the interior of Iceland is the most desolate, remote part of Iceland. You've, you've got to go up into the plateaus. You've got to fjord some rivers with your car. Literally, you have to fjord some rivers with the car. And every year there are stories of, oh, there was a bus trying to cross XYZ River and, uh, and it got swept away. Now, when a bus gets swept away uh, from an Icelandic river, uh, there's always Icelandic patrol and people that search and rescue teams that come and help it out. And so there's, there's never really any casualties. Never, never is a an absolute, but there are rarely casualties from that. But there are many stories of tourists that when they try and take their, their small little vehicle that isn't a 4x4, or they just don't know how to fjord a river with the car, that the, the river literally does sweep away the car. Uh, and the people are, all, are always fine, but the car is often a total loss. So in order to get to Landmannalaugar, you have to cross these rivers, drive in the interior for a few hours until you get to uh, the Landmannalaugar station. And from here, the red volcanic rocks and the hues of yellow and orange um, really make you feel like you're in either the world of a hobbit or, or just on a, a completely different planet. And... <clears throat> Excuse me. And then you have to be prepared to have the right equipment to be able to do this trek and perhaps even the right amount of days because oftentimes in order to start your trek, you have to hunker down there at the, at the beginning of the trek. Of the, it's called the Laugavegur trek. And you have to just hunker down there and wait because you could have 75 to 135 kilometer an hour winds whipping across the landscape. And so starting a hike in those conditions, particularly with rain, um, which is, we call it the horizontal rain of Iceland, um, is not exactly the best way to start a trek. And you've got two options here. So you could either do uh, go hut to hut, uh, which I highly recommend for those that are not used to being in a tent that's got wild winds attacking it. And uh, furthermore, most people that end up traveling on this trek don't have the right tent anyhow. So so winds like this can often shred the tent, uh, leaving you very cold and miserable and knocking on the door of the hut and hoping that they'll let you in. So a few variables here. One, you've got to have the right equipment. Two, you've got to get to the interior of Iceland. Three, you've got to be able to make sure you have enough time um, so that if you have to start two days later or end two days later, that uh, obviously you haven't missed your flight back home. But... The hike takes you through some of the most unique landscapes that you will ever see in your entire life. And I've been to Iceland. This is going to be, I leave on Wednesday. It's going to be my seventh trip there. And uh, it is unique and a half. So the Laugavegur trek, 55 kilometer trek. It leaves you uh, at Thorsmork. And then from Thorsmork, you have to arrange for your vehicle uh, to pick you up from there and then head back to Reykjavik. The trek, usually most people give it three to four days, 
but because of oftentimes having to wait beforehand because the wind is too bad or having to wait during the trek in one of the huts because the, the wind and weather is, is too terrible, um, really you need to allot a minimum of an entire week just to do this trek. But it is off the beaten path. It is remote. It is unique. And it is, <clears throat> excuse me, spectacular. Um, there's another place. Let's, I'm jumping around. The, the locations that I've chosen today to talk about the roads less traveled are jumping between different uh, landscapes, right? Obviously, I've gone, we've began with Hawaii. We've headed off to Iceland. And now let's go to the Caribbean. Um, the blue holes of the Caribbean are unique in that this is where asteroids hit our planet. They made these these indentations in the earth and they end up being aquifers where fresh water comes up through these these holes and and uh the water is crystalline clear um like you you can't imagine but some of them are blue some of them are green some of them are emerald uh the colors are are um <clears throat> are spectacular to look at and the jumping into these waters um and and seeing uh the the just the myriad of colors is one of the favorite things that I've ever done when I've gone to the Yucatan Peninsula of the Caribbean. Now, a lot of people will go, oh, yeah, well, I go to Cancun and I go to Tulum and I go to Cozumel. And when you're at any of these spots and you feel that you're just absolutely overwhelmed by the tourism and the tourists and the, the people in the cars, it's very easy to take the road less traveled and go to these what are called cenotes um, and explore them and you will just be in absolute awe of the colors and the hues. Now, there are cenotes that are closer to um, to the hotel area and to Yucatan um, uh, and to, to Cozumel and all of that, but if you really want to hit up the cenotes that are off the beaten path, then you do require a bit longer of a drive, perhaps an hour and a half to two hours. And as you head into the Yucatan state, because when, if you're in Cancun and Cozumel and those places, you're in Quintana Roo state. So you want, really want to cross into the other state. Now, for Quintana Roo, you've got uh, cenotes like uh, Dos Ojos, the two eyes uh, cenotes. You've got uh, uh, el, el, uh, Cenote Azul. You've got, uh, you've got a variety of cenotes in the area. But even those, I find, are much more frequented by people. But when you take your, uh, rent a car or have a guided group take you, um, but it's hard because not a lot of people guide to this area of, uh, of the Yucatan Peninsula, but best in what we do is we rent a car and then we drive about an hour and a half to Valladolid. And this small town, uh, in, in Yucatan state has some quaint uh, I guess not quaint would be the word, but some picturesque um, villas and villas where you could stay the night. And from there, you use it as a hopscotching point to visit these other cenotes. And all you have to ask, some of them have no name. Literally, some of them have no name. And what you do is you drive, uh, you drive along to these little towns and you just ask the local people on the road, hey, I'm looking for the cenote, uh, the blue cenote. And, and there are, the majority of them are blue. And, and the, the local will say, oh, yeah, well, you take this, this little random road at the end of the village and you turn left and you'll see on a painted sign, um, cenote del diablo and cenote of, of whatever it may be. And my lady and I, when, when we did this, and we've done this a few times, actually, um, it's just you're just so impressed by arriving to these 
giant blue holes or to this random little uh, stairwell that goes down, down, down into the cavernous cave where, where the water is just emerald um, and you swim and frolic and it's, it's warm and comfortable and all of that, um, but, but there's nobody there. And that's what makes it uh, so very unique. Uh, is that there is nobody there when you go. And I think that's what adds to so many of the adventures that we go on to and, and that we look for, is looking for places where other people are not. So, Yucatan Peninsula, you head to Valladolid, and from Valladolid, you spread out in a, in a, in a fan-like, you've got choice of, of a few towns that are around there, and you simply ask the local town, hey, is, is, uh, what's your local cenote? And they'll tell you, and there's nobody there and swimming in these blue holes is unique um you know they say that uh that the asteroids that hit the planet um millions of years ago hundreds of millions of years ago is what uh made the dinosaurs extinct so so that's one of the places that i highly recommend um in the caribbean to explore and visit on to the next one uh, would be the Northwest Territories. Now, you've definitely heard me speak about the Northwest Territories on previous podcasts, but, uh, but the Northwest Territories is, in my humble opinion, the absolute best place in the world to see the Northern Lights. Now, people often tell me, well, I hear Svalbard uh, or Norway or Lapland in Finland or um, all of these places that, that they get great Northern Lights, but there's nowhere that you can see them as bright and as spectacular, this myriad of green lights shining through the sky, like the Northwest Territories. And a lot of people will ask, often, particularly Americans, sorry, my friends, <laughs> but uh, they'll say, where is the Northwest Territories? And the Northwest Territories is basically um, north of Alberta in Canada. Um, and it's a territory that has a giant lake called Great Slave Lake. But even though you have this um, massive lake that sometimes feels ocean-like when you're on it because it's a couple, 300 kilometers long, then, um, then th there isn't a lot of precipitation in the air. And that's what makes seeing the Northern Lights in the Northwest Territories so unique and so vivid. Because if you're on, in Iceland, and I've seen the lights in Iceland maybe a dozen times, um, if you're in Iceland, there's a lot of precipitation in the air because you have an ocean surrounding the island. So, so there's a lot of per se, fog in the air. And oftentimes the skies are, are covered because obviously you've got a lot of water in the area, so it creates a lot of clouds, and so you can't see the lights. But even when, you, when the skies are clear and the lights are out, you still won't see them very brightly. They'll, they'll look very dim and hazy. And uh, for example, on one of my last trips, my, my mom was there and she was like, oh, that's the Northern Lights. Okay, not bad. <laughs> you know, like she wasn't duly impressed. Granted, a few nights later, they were much stronger. And she was like, oh, now I get it, that you can actually see them with your eyes moving and dancing around, not just with the camera. But compare that to seeing them in the Northwest Territories, and you'll be absolutely flabbergasted because you think that it's an alien coming down to, to pick you up uh, from another planet. Literally, they shine so bright, so intensely, um, that I've actually recorded it with my camera, handheld video, and you can see them just blasting through the sky. Now, for those that don't know what the Northern Lights are, basically it's uh, solar winds that are uh, charged particles that uh, are emitted from the sun. When they hit our uh, atmosphere, they, they in, these particles interact with the atmosphere. But when they hit our planet, um, 
they, they tend to gravitate to the north and to the south of the planet because of, of our atmosphere, and that pushes them to the poles. That's why we see the northern lights in the, pole, in the north pole and south pole, or northern part of the, the, the world and, and the southern part, because those particles just get sent all the way to the top. And the level at which these winds hit our atmosphere is what creates the different colors. So if it hits at a at a certain level and it, and it interacts with oxygen, then you get purple. And if it's nitrogen, then you get uh, reds. And and it makes it um, really special to see because most places in the world you can only see them in green, and that's why I think it's really neat to be able to to experience the northern lights in hues of pink and purple and white sometimes. Um, but in order to do that, you know, the you have to go to a place where. Uh, the lights really shine extremely vividly, and uh, and the Northwest Territories is that. So, in order to get there, you have two choices. You can fly to Yellowknife, and then uh, from Yellowknife, uh, you would be able to see them while you're there. But the best way to do them is to do a canoe trip in the Northwest Territories during the month of September, early September, because it's not cold. You've got no bugs. There is nobody up there, frankly put. Very few people go to the Northwest Territories because very few people are aware of how wild the northern lights shine uh, there. And then you do this canoe trip where the float plane picks you up in Yellowknife, takes you out to a remote lake or a remote section of Great Slave Lake. And from there you do a five to to ten day canoe trip. And and the lights shine so brightly that by 5.30 p.m., when uh, the sun's starting to set and it's dusk and the skies, you know, the blue hour um, where the sky's like kind of a rich blue, but it's still dusk. Um, that's when you see the lights shine. Like you, you still see the lights shine at that hour and that's how intense they are. Whereas most places in the world, obviously deep winter in a lot of places, it's minus 40 if you want to see them in Lapland or even in, if, if it was Northwest Territories in the middle of winter. But in September... You get to see them during this blue hour. And that has always been extremely unique uh, for me because seeing the northern lights when the sky isn't even fully dark gives you an idea of how intense and powerful they can be. For those unaware, we're also doing a guided trip, a canoe trip in September to do this exact uh, adventure. Uh, We take a float plane, go out for a six-day canoe trip, uh, watching the northern lights every day, and and then head back. Uh, so that is one of my favorite roads less traveled places. Now let's go to a complete other section of the planet. How about Ushuaia? Have you ever heard of that? Um, it's in Argentina, and it's the most southern tip of Argentina. There's this tiny, tiny, picturesque town, um, but it's, it's really tiny. It's like one of those places where you've got, excuse me, three streets. And that's about it. But you're at the end of the world. Um, now, the Chileans say that Puerto Aventuras, I think it is, is the most southern town. But but reality-wise, uh, Ushuaia is. And Ushuaia is known as the end of the world. And from there, well, to begin with, there you can do a few hikes in the mountain, uh, in the mountains right behind the town. And when I was there, I had just, when I did, did this hike, I had just gotten off the boat from Antarctica and I was aching to trek. So there's a, a mountain called Cerro Bonete, and it's right behind uh, the town, and you can trek up. It's called. It's in the Fijian Andes, is what technically the term for for the area there. 
and you trek up um, and, uh, across uh, snow-patched mountains. You've got you'll see beaver dams larger than you've ever imagined because the smart uh, Argentinians that were trying to eradicate a rodent problem many years ago, I think it was in the seventies, they brought beavers from my land, from Canada. And, uh, and what they didn't realize is that the beaver doesn't have a natural predator in Argentina. So inadvertently, these beavers became um, the chefs or the, the, it's not the chefs, but the, the powerhouses, apex predators <laughs> of, of the land and nothing eats them. So, so they make these dams that are 10 times the size, literally, I kid not, no exaggeration, 10 times the size of a regular beaver dam here in Canada and the beavers grow to be monstrous. I mean, like you're like, is that a meter and a half long beaver? Yes, it is. So, so that trek up and through these mountains is really quite beautiful and nobody really goes there because they tend uh, to focus on other areas of Argentina and Patagonia. So, so this Cerro Bonete, um, there's a, a lake called uh, Lago Esmeralda. You know, very unique. People, <laughs> people are very unique in naming their lakes around the world. When it's an emerald lake, it's Emerald Lake. <laughs> and and uh, we've got Emerald Lake in Yoho National Park. And this one is Emerald Lake in uh, the Fijian Andes at the base of Cerro Bonete. And as you're coming down, you see this giant circle uh, of emerald water. And then obviously the ocean in the distance because we're just on the cusp of the ocean there. And, and it makes it really interesting. Now, the trick for this road less traveled is that if you want to go to Antarctica, it's the way to go. And a lot of people say, well, hey, you know, Antarctica is a typical trip and, and, uh, and it's $10,000 per person to go. But while I was there, I went into one of the shops that sell the tickets to go to Antarctica. And I said, oh, say, hey, uh, I, you know, I was a young guy. I was maybe 22 or so. And I was like, hey, you know, what, what could I, how much does it cost to go to Antarctica? And they're like, well, 10 grand US. And I was like, okay, no, thank you. I think that's, that's uh, way over my budget. But then the lady said something that became a trick for future that I've, I've told many people and that they've done uh, as well. And I said, and they told me, um, but you know, if you come to us two days before and there's a, uh, a berth available to go to Antarctica, then we'll sell it to you for $5,000. And I said, really? And said, yeah, yeah, they just, we just have to make sure that there's availability. And I guess what it comes down to is that most people can't book a two-week trip to Antarctica at the very last second. And so it's very unlikely that any, the, the amount of people that would take a last-minute booking to jump on this berth and go see the last continent. But that's exactly what you can do. And 90% of the time, from what I understand, there's always a berth available to get on the, on these boats to go to Antarctica if you do it last second instead of booking in advance. And obviously, you save yourself 5000 US. Now, the ship ride to Antarctica is rough. I mean, the, the seas are towering like mountains. Um, I spent half my time horizontal on the boat. Uh, and when I was vertical, I was over the handrail <laughs> being... Uh, being sick and it, it is it is a rough ride to get it but it's worth it we went through the Falkland Islands um, and you stop by the Falklands a bit and every time you put feet on shore after being on on you know they're the roughest seas in the world um, you feel delighted um, and and seeing the penguins in Antarctica and just the ground and watching them frolic around uh, is is really something special and watching the glaciers calf um, it, it's a unique trip and a half but you have to be ready for some rough seas because it is it is a tumultuous ride. Now, 
one I went on an expedition ship, which is a maximum hundred passenger ship from uh, Ushuaia, and uh, there are some that are much larger. But I do recommend the smaller one for the experience of seeing Antarctica with a small crew, and they take you to see the different uh, stations. So the Russian station, <clears throat> Russians. <laughs> And they take you to see um, each of the different uh, stations there. And it's really neat because, uh, like, the, for example, the Russian station when we went there, they have a gym in the station and literally wall-to-wall plastered of nude women and a bit crass. But I guess when, when they're leaving people uh, in the middle of nowhere for many months at a time on a deep winter, I guess these people need that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But it was it was, it was was tacky but, but funny. And, of course, they did... Uh, they did uh, offer us lots of shots uh, of vodka as well. But but that Antarctica trip is one that I would highly recommend people to, to figure out on a budget because um, it is unique, it is different, uh, and it is a destination that really gives you uh, a, a view into how our Earth is changing because uh, the glaciers are calving um, at, a, at an incredibly fast rate. Um, so there you go. There's another one that I highly recommend. Now, the next one that I, I want to jump onto for roads less traveled uh, is a place that used to be less traveled and now is a bit more frequented, and it is closer to home. So I live in Worcester, British Columbia, Canada, for those unaware where that is. You look at a map, uh, we're above the United States, and on the far left side, there's a province called BC. We are provinces, not states. And um, and then you head up, uh, so if you're fl- if you if your goal is to head to the Joffrey Lakes, um, basically you fly into Vancouver, you drive up uh, through Whistler to a town called Pemberton. From Pemberton, you go up what's called the Duffy Road, which many people say is the steepest road that they've driven for uh, a long period of time because it has 13 degree grade for many kilometers and uh and many people when they're coming down that road their brakes are just done i have had my brakes be so hot once that i did have to use one of the runways that they put so that your car goes on to the side and you know crash but anyways i digress joffrey lakes used to be an undiscovered gem my lady and i used to spend um at least two camping trips every summer uh for i'd say a good five years before it started to be frequented and you know Instagram and social media, I think, obviously, I'm an influencer, photographer, videographer, uh, and so it has given me a spectacular and extraordinary life, but obviously, it is indeed my fault and many other people's that by uh, promoting these destinations, so many people end up going. And Joffrey Lakes, you've got three different lakes as you as you start your trek. For those that are that are not uh, keen to go camping up in the mountain. There's the first lake that you can walk to that's just a couple hundred, 500 meters or so, um, a flat terrain to get to it. And it is gorgeous, you know, just an emerald, another emerald lake uh, crowned by snow-capped mountains all around. And then there's Middle Joffrey Lake, which is about, uh, I think, another three kilometers up. Um, and this one also very, very uh, spectacular. But it's the third lake that really, really impresses the most. And this one is uh, is a good seven kilometers up. And the campground spots are on the other end of the lake. So most pe- 99% of people that go to Joffrey Lakes will go, uh, will do the hike um, to the second lake. Well, let's say a certain percentage only go to the first lake, a lesser percentage to the second, a lesser percentage to the third and an even lesser quantity of people 
actually make their way to the end of the lake and camp at the other end of the lake. And we actually ended up taking our, I took my whole little family uh, last year and I had, so basically a very pregnant, uh, uh, no, uh, baby had been born. So baby was uh, two months old, a a three-year-old toddler and a five-year-old toddler. And we camped up there for five days. And this lake is definitely one of the most jaw-dropping vistas that you'll ever have because it's crowned by snow-capped mountains. Um, And if you have the right gear and the right equipment, it really is uh, a picturesque place to be. So all you have to do is go online and look for Joffrey Lakes, J-O-F-F-R-E. It used to be unknown, now much more so. But that being said, uh, if you still want to do it differently... Uh, And uniquely, you can by simply camping up high because very few people actually go to that point and camp up high. I've got a few more more places that I wanted to chat to you about that are unique and spectacular. I I did just uh, a few months ago in February do Kilimanjaro. Um, There used to be 75,000 people that would visit Kilimanjaro every year. Um, now it's dwindled down to 10,000. And, and I think one of the, I guess, uh, interesting things about, um, about Kilimanjaro is, is that the pandemic has caused it to become a road less traveled because people are more wary of, of trips that are far away from home uh, and that leave them at bigger distances than they would have expected uh, or that they would feel comfortable with. Uh, to do so, so definitely, uh, we do guide a trip there uh, once once a year, uh, every February. Every February. So, if you're keen on trekking up um, seventy kilometers with us over seven days and then doing a safari, then do send me a message through social or through here, and it is a very very unique place to explore. And then um, there's also uh, another one that I wanted to tell you, but. Uh, well, I guess if you you are a beach loving person and looking for the the most uh, white sand that you can find and uh, clean water and pretty much nobody on the beach, then there's this island in Turks and Caicos called Turks and Caicos called South Caicos, and it's off the beaten path because in order to get there, you know, a lot of the places we choose that in order to get there, you have to add a day of travel. Uh, above and beyond and a day back of travel to that destination. So the destinations that require an extra day just to get to the spot are the ones that get to be uh, tend to be less frequented because a lot of people when they're traveling somewhere and they only have a week, then for them to cut off uh, their first day, another first another day of travel at the beginning and at the end makes it that their uh, their week suddenly is very short. So South Caicos, in order to get there, you need to fly into Providencialis in Turks and Caicos, which is an archipelago of, of Caribbean islands uh, just north of, uh, of Cuba and Dominican Republic. And if you were to follow the, the Floridian uh, point, which becomes the Bahamas and all of that, and you just keep going uh, along there, you'll, you'll find the Turks and Caicos on the map. They're quite, quite tiny islands, but they are protected by a barrier reef around them. And this reef makes it so that you don't, uh, you don't get sargasso, which is the seaweed from that's, you know, devastating a lot of uh, the beaches around the Caribbean these days. Um, and it basically catches anything. 
so that the beaches are pristine and white sand. But South Caicos for the kite surfer is a paradise because imagine a, a, a little hotel called East Bay Resorts um, on a perfect stretch of white sand where you can kite your days away, protected by a reef, seeing a, a, a slew of, of sharks and rays all over as you're on the water, um, and there's nobody else there. And I guess that's that's the type of place that we look for, places that are off the beaten path. And from there, you can kayak to another point on the island. Um, well, actually, you need to drive to the other point on the island. Uh, and then from, it's called Jerry's Point. And from Jerry's Point, you take a kayak. And you can kayak to a spit of, of island that only appears in the cut, where the cut is where uh, the ocean comes in through the reef. Um, and you can spend your day on that sand spit. And you really do feel like you are in a paradise of no equal. And it's a destination that we go back to time and time again. And my lady keeps repeating to me, we need to go back to Turks and Caicos in May. So perhaps you might see us there. Thank you very much for tuning in today for a few of my roads less traveled. I'm always very excited to have new listeners. And, and uh, thank you. We shall see you next time. Next episode coming to you live from Whistler tomorrow. And a few after that will be from Iceland. I'm Roberto. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.